Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Oh, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Raleigh Williams. He is the CEO of Deal Maven, and he sold his last company for over $26 million. And now he's out there. He's helping people like you and I do acquisition deals. So I want to thank you for being on the show today and get to learn from you today. Stoked to be here. Let's get into it. Okay. I always joke around and my favorite joke is, hey, you were born and now today you ended up on a show about buying and selling businesses. Could you fill in the gap in between a little bit? Can you tell us how you ended up on a show like this? <laughs> sure. This is the most salient, this is the most important part of my life. So almost everything else almost pales in comparison. But well, I started as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. I went to law school. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers. I'm the youngest of five kids. My dad's a lawyer. They're all on the litigation side. I was the black sheep because I wanted to do transactions. I wanted to do deals. And litigators view deal lawyers as fake lawyers, basically. And so I wanted to do mergers and acquisitions. I actually started in bankruptcy doing restructuring deals. I didn't like that. So I went into mergers and acquisitions. I did it in Manhattan and Dallas, Texas. And so at big firms doing billion dollar plus mergers, acquisitions, capital market offerings, raising new financings for public companies. And I lasted there about nine months. I really didn't like it as I was doing it. It was a very corporate environment. I just didn't, I didn't respect the people that I was working for because I felt like they knew so much. They knew so much on how to mitigate risk and how to do all these deals and do all this complex stuff, but they wouldn't put their own skin into the game on something that they knew very well. And M&A, it didn't take me very long to see the closing term sheets of these deals where the entrepreneurs were making $500, $750 million to say, I feel like I'm in the wrong piece of this transaction. <laughs> How do I get into a different side of this somehow? And the opportunity came along pretty quickly for me to buy an interest in a family entertainment center, a trampoline park business, and escape rooms were just coming in vogue at that time. And so I felt like I could use my acquisition experience, my law experience to kind of ingratiate myself with the guys that were running it at that time. And so I bought a small stake that ultimately became a larger stake. And from 2016 to 2021, we took a business that was doing, that had been doing about $2 million a year in revenue for the prior six years. And we got it to a little over $10 million a year in revenue, mostly through acquisitions and through growing locations. And then right before COVID, I kind of felt like I had taken this opportunity that helped me get out of law and that it had grown into a bigger thing than I expected it to be. And I felt like it was time for me to start being on the disposition side of things that I didn't want to continue growing it like I thought that I did. And timing was fortunate because COVID blew a hole in that industry of what it looked like. And we didn't get fully out before COVID. We actually still have two of the parks currently, but we sold the majority of that business. It took us nine transactions to do it between sellers. We owned real estate. We owned a lot of different types of businesses. And I learned that we, I learned a lot through that sale process. And as I was kind of coming out of the operational responsibilities of that business, I felt like there was a gap in the marketplace in terms of how these assets trade hands that 
full acquisitions as they're current, usually termed with an SBA loan, a personal guarantee. Those are heavy transactions to do. They're difficult transactions to do. The acquirer has to put a lot of skin in the game. If they're wrong about the deal, they can lose a lot. And so Deal Maven was kind of a response to that of connecting buyers and sellers on different types of assets to let them do more entrepreneurial deals that brokers wouldn't typically allow for. And now I'm here. So that should bridge the gap completely. I got it. Yeah. Thing that comes to my mind is two things. I think there's as many non-practicing attorneys out there than there are that practicing. It's not uncommon for somebody to go to law school, pass the bar, go out into the field and do it and decide they want to do something else. Yeah. I think when I was growing up, my dad would always tell me that a legal education is the best education you can get no matter what. And I think that's true to some extent. I think the cost of a legal education is very different than it was when he went to law school in the 1980s. And so for a lot of people, it's cost prohibitive to spend that much money in a legal and legal learning and then not leverage it in the area that you're getting the most money to do, which is practicing law. You talk a lot about on your side about partial acquisitions and that reducing some of the risk and some of the exposure and stuff. Let's talk about what is a partial acquisition and from your point of view, and how do you guys help facilitate that? A partial acquisition. So the kind of the principle that I focus on, one of the best things that one of my very first mentors, when I was practicing law, a billionaire, I went to a dinner with him. And he was doing a lot more deals than all of these private equity guys were doing. And he was doing it on his own dime. He didn't have limited partners or any of that stuff. And I asked him how he could do so many deals and how he was able to kind of crank through these faster than the professionals could. And what he said was that he only does deals that if he's right, he gets rich. And if he's wrong, he doesn't go broke, which is a pretty simple formula, but I look at every deal with that lens that meaning on the upside, I don't want to buy something that even if I do everything right, there's not enough impact to my personal net worth to make it all worth it. And I see that mistake a lot and kind of the no money down, like try to get as many assets on like hundred percent seller financing as possible. And from my vantage, the majority of those assets that a seller wants to give on 100% seller financing are usually not assets that if you're right about the asset, it's going to get you rich because the seller themselves knows something that you don't about that asset. <laughs> There's exceptions to that rule, right? And obviously the game is to try to live in the world of exceptions there. And then on the flip side, it's if you're wrong, you don't go broke. And what I found is on the other end, on the one hand of the spectrum, you have kind of the Warren Buffett cigarette butt analogy of only buy assets for as cheap as you can and whatever you can get for 100% seller, seller financing, take those deals. That's how Warren Buffett started. And then over time, he said, it's better to get great assets at fair prices over fair assets at great prices, right? The price doesn't have to be the sorting mechanism. Really, it's better to buy great things. And on the other end of the spectrum, particularly in the SMB world, kind of lower beneath the middle market where the private equity professionals are playing, you have SBA deals where the SBA will land up to 90% and the operator, anyone who's own, owning more than 20% of that business is signing a full personal guarantee on that asset that's backed by the cash flow, but also the personal assets of typically the operator. And on those deals, the risk is if you're wrong, you can very clearly go broke, right? And so then you have the middle ground of how do you get deals done in the middle that if you're right, you get rich, and if you're wrong, you don't go broke. And so what this guy did, the experience that I saw as his deal lawyer was he wouldn't ever take, he wouldn't ever buy all of a business or an asset at the very beginning. Business, mode, like he would do real estate deals differently, but businesses, he would buy a partial stake in a business, a meaningful stake, not a venture style, not one or 2%. 20, 30, up to 60% of a business because it solves two things. One, it allows the operator, you only, you only, at least I only want to be in businesses that the operator doesn't view me as their escape path. I want to find the escape path with the operator who has the knowledge leverage on me on that asset. They know what's happening in that business because they're the one who started it. And so I don't like operators seeing me as the escape path out because there's information asymmetry. They know something I don't. Why do they want to get out 
while I'm trying to get in. That feels like a law firm, right? Goes in, one out, goes in, out, one in. And so I like to find deals where the entrepreneur, the operator has enough gas in the tank that they're still long-term bullish, optimistic about the future prospects of the business. Maybe they need a little bit of funding. Maybe they want to take some chips off of the table so they're so all of their net worth isn't tied up in this asset. And typically they need some strategic help or some resource help in order to take the business to the next level. And so partial acquisitions are, are kind of the vehicle to buy less than all of the business. And typically you're, you're buying a portion of the equity without buying all of the equity and the operator is staying in and some function in order to help you get to the next stage. And there's a lot of terms that could be called growth equity. Most private equity firms do some version of this with either an earnout or seller financing where there's the front end transaction and typically the operating team and the executive team either rolls equity back into the business to keep operating or has some continued stake in the future performance of the business outside of the buy-sell transaction. I see that a lot in the private equity space where they come in, they'll buy 80%, leave 20% on the table. You have an earn out, you get your 20% at the other end. And it's usually a three to five year earn out period and stuff. It happens over and over again, right? I had Adam Coffey on here once and I think he said there's the company he worked with and for as a CEO went through like five private equity transactions. The last yeah. one selling for over a, in the billions, right? I think it was a heat and air company. But yeah, they come in, they buy some portion of it and leave some on the table so you get to participate in the scale and the growth and you got skin in the game. So it's kind of that employee ownership. You take that totally off the, I wouldn't want the owner to stay if I took everything off the table and he had no right. financial motive for making it work. So- I'm a big believer in what you're doing there. I'm a big believer in coming in as much as 60, maybe as much as 70% and, and a clear plan on what it looks like with that other part of that. It also opens up assets, particularly in kind of the, this new age of internet style businesses. A lot of times the entrepreneur hasn't built a business that's sellable or that's functional without the, their heavy involvement in it. And so it's not something like the deal that I did at the end of 2022 was a deal where the operator entrepreneur who owned all of the business prior wanted to sell the business and put her business on deal maven. We looked at helping her as an advisor, but as we took it to market, we realized that she was the heart of the business. And if you take the heart out, you're left with a corpse and you're selling it for pieces and you get far less, you get no multiple expansion. You don't get great economics selling off a business that, that isn't doing much. And the one wild card that you have to manage on partial acquisitions is you're bringing in a new partner in this business. And so it's a relationship game. You have to feel very comfortable that they have good judgment and that they can, that they have a vision that aligns with the acquisition team in terms of where this business wants to go. Because you can build the operating agreement from heaven and it's no good if you're dealing with someone who's insane. <laughs> and so trying to get to know who the entrepreneur is, what their situation is and what their long-term goals are and trying to structure something to that. And so partial acquisitions are, that's an attempt to try to give Acquisition entrepreneurs, maybe people that are more on the SMB side of things, some of the toolkits that I've seen on the legal side from the private equity side that usually aren't readily available or like very commonly spoken about at kind of broad mass market in terms of how real deal people get a lot of deals done. So one of the complexities inside of that is that matchmaking that I honestly think that business partnerships are as dangerous and or important to consider as relationships and marriage, right? If it goes wrong, that relationship goes wrong. They're going to, you know, half the stuff goes each way. A business goes wrong, a business relationship, you're probably both left with nothing, right? right? You'll fight and destroy it before you have an opportunity to sell it. And nobody wants to buy a company. I've actually looked at a few company where like you get into it and you find out the reason they're selling is the two owners are fighting and 
it's just hard to get all the way through that process because they're never going to agree. They're both vindictive. And I get to where I just don't even look at them anymore if they're doing that, right? It's just the drama that's inside of it. It had to be pretty lucrative for me to get past the, they're always saying bad things about each other. You have to work with both of them at some point for some period of time. And typically on those deals where it's like two owners, one owner is bullish, one owner wants out. And so we take the owner out that wants out. Mm -hmm. Right. So we'll typically not take, I mean, it's one thing if it's an executive team and there's, if there's acrimony there, there's bad blood in any way, then we'll try to excise the tumor as best we can. We excise them with cash. Here's your money, take it. And those are messier deals, but you're, but the risk typically in that deal, the risk is already priced in, right? They know that they have something that's an issue. And so to the extent that you can play it the right way, which is always the flip of the coin, then you're looking for other factors that kind of point you to the fact that this business without this cancer can really do great things. It's a simple business. It's been around for a long time. All those other factors, if it's a startup six months in, they have no revenue and the founders are fighting and one of them wants out, you're not buying an asset, you're buying a project, you're buying a dream and a pitch deck and that's not worth doing, but yeah, it's definitely a human, it's a human risk, but it's a known human risk. And a lot of times, and even full acquisitions where you bring the SBA in, a lot of times there you have kind of latent human risk that you aren't even aware that you have, because a lot of those businesses in the sub two to $3 million range are really driven on the backs of one person. A lot of times it's the owner who's trying to, who's been coached by a broker to make it seem like the owner is off on a beach somewhere when really they're answering the phone calls and making sure the dry cleaning gets delivered on time or some general manager type operator that's usually undercompensated overworked that you have unknown key man risk in most transactions and at least in partials, you, you know that you have it. One of my ventures I did many, many years ago now, probably 15, 17 years ago, is I actually, this is one of the ones that's kind of embarrassing. I failed miserably at it. I tried to start a dating service, right? Online dating. It was called honestyfirst.com. I still own the domain, but basically what I didn't know is nobody on this planet wants to be kept honest inside of their dating profile. So <laughs> that, that is said, I solved the problem of the Mr. Potato Head problem where they kind of look like they were. So I had this tools and stuff we built in to keep people honest in their profiles. The whole concept of like getting two individuals to figure out what the commonalities they are looking for and stuff, all the parameters that go into finding a match on even just dating. I think there would be the equal number of more parameters you'd want to know as far as a human interaction with another person to see if I want to be business partners with you, right? Most business partners I've had, it came organically. Like we, we worked together on, we both worked at the same company. We left and created something together because we knew we worked well. We complimented each other. And even some of those after a couple of years are like, I'm just done with this guy, <laughs> right? Sure. So how do you handle that dynamics, understanding as people come in, how do you guys provide any guidance for that? Or do you guys say, how do you make sure that the people that are buying partial acquisitions know what they're looking for and who they could work well with or not work well with? Yeah, typically in a partial acquisition, you're coming into the capital stack, providing a unique value that the current entrepreneur is stuck with, that can't overcome somehow. So in this deal that we did at the end of last year, she had a webinar business. I'm not versed in webinars. We bought two thirds of the business, but I brought in a guy named Steve Larson, who's a webinar expert. Very familiar. Yeah. I know what he's doing in webinars. So Steve and I did that deal and we brought in a couple limited partners on the capital raise to bring the equity slug that she took off of the table. I think anytime you get an inclination that a deal feels off or that it feels like you're pressing for it or it feels stressful, I think that's a good inclination that you're barking up the wrong tree and it's just not, it's just not the deal to do. So this deal that we did with Steve, every almost every piece of it was easy. She's a pharmacist by trade. And so I liked the fact that she had spent time in school, that she had certifications, that she had licenses, which shows a certain commitment to shitty processes, <laughs> a certain mental fortitude that's required. She was adamant about wanting to grow something big. We just spent a lot of time. We spent far more time 
on the relationship, the three of us getting to know each other than we did doing diligence on the quality of earnings or what the traffic sources look like or any of that stuff. And it, it felt like she had built this small relative in size. It was a couple hundred thousand dollar deal, but it felt like she had built something almost by accident. It felt like she had massively overperformed relative to her marketing know-how. She's a total expert in the field of pharmacy and pharmacogenomics, which is the sector that it was in. But I tried to just pay a lot of attention to what's happening, like who's bringing the momentum to the conversation. If we all agreed that we were going to do certain things, did they get done in this meeting? All this is happening in, in diligence. We negotiated the operating agreement prior to the purchase and sale agreement. So that way we could get out and there were disagreement. There were plenty of disagreements about who should be getting paid and what the payment cycle should look like and how much cash to keep in the bank account. And the disagreements are fine. It's just, is everyone disagreeing productively? <laughs> are we reaching a consensus on the way we're going to go forward and run this thing, what the goals are? And it's been less than a month. So we may be in the honeymoon phase. We may, me and you may talk in a year from now and I'll say under no circumstance. I have my own criteria of what I look for in partners now, just because I've, and that's been a function of having many, many bad ones and some mm -hmm. great ones. Typically I want to get to know the spouse of the partner pretty well and know what the spouse is looking for and what the spouse is okay with and not okay with. I want to know what their hobbies are, what they like to do, because I found me personally, when I'm a pretty hard charging guy. I like to work 15, 16 hours a day. And so when I have had partners that are hunters or fishers or outdoorsmen or golfers, like those are kind of, those tend to be lax kind of, let's take it easy. Let's work to live. And I'm kind of a live to work kind of guy. And that's okay. Like it's, it just is what it is. I'm not saying that's healthy. I don't recommend it. It's just how I'm geared. And so I know that when I've had partners that are hunters and they say, Hey man, I got my elk tag for this year. And so I'll see you in six weeks. And I'll say, what the hell are you talking about <laughs> in six weeks? I'll see you in the office tomorrow. And those issues I've just found, I just have my own internal checklist of, and I try to be very upfront and frank, as frank as I can be of, about the knocks that people that i that my partners have told me about how I work. And, and we do personality tests too. We do the disc assessment of everybody say, okay, this is how Raleigh works. This is how everybody works. So like, do we still want to do this thing or don't we want to do this thing? And if it doesn't make sense, then great. On to the next one. That said, I don't want to be in a position where I've got to pull 70 hour weeks and miss my, my kids stuff. When my kids are out of school today at 240, they'll get out of school and I'll hang out with them. I'll make them snacks. We'll do some stuff. They'll get bored with me pretty quickly and go play with their tablets and their video games or whatever. Right. And then I'll jump back on the computer and work a little bit more in the night. And then I put them to bed. When they go to bed for school at night, I'll put a couple of more hours in at night. So I still put sure. a lot of work in. But when my kids need me or want me, I'm there. And I think a lot of it comes from growing up. Until I was old enough to work for my father, I didn't see him very often. My concern is like picking that right person. So it's not like you, instead of doing that, if you're doing the SBA loan and stuff, you're doing all this due diligence and make sure they're telling the right story and stuff. You're doing the same amount of due diligence, but is this the right person? Is this the right project? Do I, is this something I want to commit my time to? There is that same level of intensity around due diligence. You're just focusing in on the relationship as much as most people would focus in on the numbers and the factual data. Yeah. And the assets, the business that they're involved in is important. And typically I like to do deals in threes where it's me, I'm kind of the deal guy. And then depending on what the subject matter is of the business and what the lack is, I'll try to find an expert that I bring to the table as kind of the deal partnership. I've made mistakes there and you just try to minimize them and not make them happen again as best you can. Life circumstances change and you try to protect yourself through the purchase and sale agreement, the operating agreements have protections in place. And I think it, I found more and more from a negotiating standpoint when I was, I'm not that old, but when I was earlier on in the process, I would think of it in terms of negotiating leverage and holding information back. Now I try to be much more transparent on the front end about here's what my concerns are in this deal. And because for me, I've learned that if I'm, 
in a negotiating situation with someone who won't be reciprocal and understanding of what my concerns are. And if it's someone that says, well, you can go to hell because that's my terms, either take it or leave it. If I'm buying a car, I don't really care what our relationship looks like on a post-transaction basis. But if we're doing this thing together and you say, these are my terms, take it or leave it. And it's an ultimatum type situation. I've just learned that no asset is worth that type of relationship. And there's more deals to be had. Again, on a full purchase and sale kind of typical transaction that works, but life is short and dealing with people that suck usually isn't worth it. The economics are typically don't make the juice worth the squeeze. It's interesting as I, on your website, you mentioned the shark tank. It kind of seems like that you're working with people, you're partnering with them, you help them take them to the next level, infusing some cash, infusing some expertise, even if it's not just your own, you're bringing a third party operator in to match the expertise they need. So it's a little bit of that shark tank I've known and been around and actually talked to people who pitched the show, a couple of people that got deals. I won't say who they are, just some of them say some good things and bad things about it. It doesn't always work out for the shark tank guys. A lot of the ones they fund on the show where they say they're funded they don't actually get funded, right? They get a deal in the show and then they have to cut it because they'll come back and they can't talk about it and stuff. And you can tell they got an offer. And then later on, it never shows them the offer. And yeah. during the due diligence, basically what happens is something wasn't quite right or the relationship because they meet with those people a lot after the show. Something's not right. that just didn't feel right or whatever. And they decide to do a different thing. And then the ones that make it, if you watch the interviews now that the show's been around for many seasons and you watch the interviews on like, lessons learned, a lot of those deals are just like anything else. A lot of those deals didn't work out like they expected. Part of the point of DealMaven when I, as I was building it from a marketplace or a software standpoint is the way that most deals typically get done is a seller or a broker listed on a marketplace. And the marketplace is all the function of highlighting the asset or hopefully the business. What is the trailing 12 months? What's the revenue? What location is in? What type of business is it? And then a seller gets inbound leads from buyers, a seller or a broker, right, is listening to buyers and buyers just say, hey, my name is Raleigh Williams. I'm interested. Can you send me more info? And the SIM or the confidential investment memorandum is all highlighted around the asset. And 50% of deals that reach a signed letter of intent fall through. And a big reason that happens is because there's so much focus on the, you start at the asset level typically, and then you kind of expand in concentric circles to get to, okay, well, who's the seller? Why do they want to leave this thing? What's happening? And the seller is also trying to vet out who is this buyer? Do they have money? Why do they want this thing? Can they actually close? And DealMaven connects people, but the buyer side of the marketplace is really the sorting function of the buyer, you can see what their profile is, what cash they have, if they have any, what types of deals that are they looking for. And so it's really a function to help the buyers to put their profile and kind of their mandate criteria, their deal criteria. What are the types of deals that they're looking for? What's their actual expertise? So that way the buyer can get deals from brokers and sellers of oh, you have a marketing expertise. With your expertise, this asset would actually be a lot better. And so it tries to bring the deal that's typically done on the asset level of what the selling business is, like you would do a house and take it more with the realities of an M&A deal on a small or medium-sized business isn't the same as buying a house from somebody. The asset itself isn't sufficient information to really get the deal done. And you really need more information on the parties that, that are doing the deal. And so trying to highlight, particularly the buy side of those deals is the most enigmatic. It's the big black box on, in my trampoline park business, I sold all of my businesses. I didn't use an intermediary and I would do build a financial deck, put it on biz buy, sell, put it on biz quest, put it on all the marketplaces. And then you get this influx of hundreds of inquiries and you have no idea if somebody wants to buy my $26 million business on a hundred percent seller financing. Do they have the cash? What's their exposure to the family entertainment center? Because if you're not, if you're not actively in that space, the chances of us getting a deal done is very low because you, there's a massive learning curve for you to actually get it done. And so dealmaven.io outside of the content aspect of it is about transparency around who the buyers are so that way they can get actual inbound deal flow 
based on their expertise. Awesome. I think we've covered that concept. I do want to spend some time talking about one of your recent acquisitions, mainly because it holds true to my heart. It's media, right? You've got a media thing. And that's kind of the space I'm in right now where I'm looking at and creating, even building. I'm, I'm 50. I said, I'm not going to build anything new. And then I catch myself building stuff just because there's nothing. Yeah. I can't find anything on the market exactly the way I want it. Yeah. So I'm building something. And that's just the entrepreneur spirit. Like if it's not there, I'll freaking make it. Right. That said, talk about your recent acquisition and that own in the audience type of space is the way I like to call it, but I'm sure. Yes. As we've been operating DealMaven, we've seen a lot of businesses and one of the ways that I have grown DealMaven has been buying media channels myself. There are a couple M&A groups, a couple Instagram accounts of professional dead investors that have kind of an audience of people that are wanting to learn about how, what these guys thought about doing deals. And so I myself have grown DealMaven acquiring media assets, Facebook groups, Instagram channels, blogs, email lists, whatever. And what I found was as we started to look at doing a potential kind of done for you search service, I really wanted to help entrepreneurs go out and buy other businesses to build kind of a conglomerate hold co thing. But the entrepreneurs that we were dealing with, what they really wanted is they really wanted media. <laughs> they wanted to acquire media assets. That was kind of the thing that they understood and the thing that they could see that would help their business grow. And so we did a couple, we did a couple media deals kind of as a done for you service for people that already had businesses. It was just an interesting trend that I couldn't find great. There are some like for newsletters, you can go to Deuce or you can kind of scour the marketplaces of MicroAcquire and some of the other smaller ones to look for media specific things, blogs, whatever. But I thought it was interesting that there wasn't one core marketplace or one core service provider that really focused on audience and like the assets have inherent value due to the fact that they have audience and everything outside of that is kind of ancillary, right? And there was a business that came up for sale that kind of had the right marketplace layout that I was looking for after I've been doing DealMaven. I didn't want to start on a new software dev project. And so there's this marketplace service that came available. It was called Early Acquire and they were doing it for software. And so it just made sense in my head, maybe not in anybody else's head, but it made sense in my head to buy that business, rebrand it, retool it to media only assets and build the marketplace and service around how do you go out and acquire media assets, whatever business you're in post iOS 14, attention is getting more and more expensive to capture and to monetize. And so for when people who have something already wanting to scale it, the next question is how do we, how do we get traffic on a more consistent basis that we can control? So you can either rent it through Facebook ads, collaborations, whatever, or build it from scratch, which is great, but it takes a long time or buy it. And I felt like as I looked at the landscape of what are the buy it options, I didn't see anything that made a ton of sense. I was kind of the go-to buy it place. And so I figured I'd build it. I mean, that's what I'm doing inside of these newsletters. Like there's just, none of them are doing what I want. And I'm in the deuce. And it's not a bad site, but they only usually they only have three or four assets for sale. And they're not exactly right. what I'm looking for. And then I've interviewed both Empire Flippers and Flippa. I've been on their site day in and day out looking for it. There's just usually not. And I'll tell you the other space that's missing is for these podcasts, right? There's no real good market that I know of to see if anybody wants to sell a podcast. It's inherently hard to sell because we you're tied to a face or in a voice. But there should be some market, some market for those I would be willing and to media choir. We're doing it. We have one that's got over a hundred thousand downloads right now. That is that we're looking at putting on. I mean, the difference that we'll do in media choir versus some other marketplaces, and I won't name any of them because I'm going to talk shit about them is <laughs> we'll do proactive outreach in a way that I think most marketplaces are kind of like, this is the infrastructure come and fill the, fill it. However you'd like, we'll do proactive outreach. Cause the nice thing about, media assets specifically is that they should be findable. So you should right. be able to see where they are. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of time on a podcast with downloads and maybe getting consistent new downloads. There's just not a great place to sell that. So we'll do Reddit threads, Discord servers, podcasts, blogs, 
Snapchat accounts, like anything that it's within terms of service to trade hands for whatever reason, like we'll, we'll make it happen. So it's interesting. Some of these places say you can try, like at some point, I don't know if you can now, but at some point Facebook wasn't really big on their groups changing hands and they're like, you couldn't, you weren't supposed to sell it, but all you have to do is like, you're just transferring who the admin is. Right. Yeah, I think that there is some, I think that there's one case that not legal case, but Facebook case of, hmm. I think that they have some restriction around like community specific groups, like location, community, like the city that you're in type stuff. And those trading hands, I think those are kind of frowned upon. I think if you read the terms of service of Facebook with to the letter of the law, you're not supposed to use your Facebook profile for promotion or a Facebook group for any type of promote. I mean, if they really put on the enforcement hat, the 6 million Facebook groups that exist, maybe go down to 12 in terms of true compliance. I think it, a part of that is just, and we've done this in the past on, and the people that we've done on a more service level is just making sure that the transfer of ownership isn't done with a heavy hand and the ongoing management isn't heavy handed to the people within the community, which you shouldn't do if you're buying this thing because you're going to get long-term value out of it. Doing that slowly on the front end and allowing for that transfer of ownership is important for you to have a long enough time horizon for you to really capture your investment on it. One of the reasons I do the newsletter is it gives me another output and these podcast anybody stumbles across the podcast like they listen to this one they really like it right and they go i want to see the rest of the content well i've interviewed over 100 people now who has 100 hours to go listen to all the interviews and to get that caught up but in the newsletter and in the articles if i convert all these newsletters i mean all these podcasts into decent articles about what was discussed that gives people an opportunity to search engine to crawl through it a little more thoroughly and people to go, wait a second, there's this part of this one. I want to read that. And then they can read it and go back and watch the episode. So I think it's a great compliment. So I like that you're covering all the different aspects of the media that's available on today's world, right? It's not just newsletters or not just podcasts and not just YouTube channels that you can build a media holding co around a particular topic. The reason I do that and want to do that is to upsell, cross-sell promotion across the different ones to be able to take a set of assets and <clears throat> say, you're interested in buying and selling a business? Are you interested in podcasts? We have a podcast here. Oh, no. Well, then we have a newsletter. Like, what is your media? What is your choice of consuming media right. to be able to provide good content in that source, right? And there's visual YouTube, there's spoken podcast, iTunes and that type of stuff or whatever's around the Apple podcast. And then there's the written. I'm sure at some point there'll be some other. We're just getting into that world. Yeah. I mean, for Media Acquire, it's really built for people that know what they're doing with eyeballs. They just need more of them and ideally want to own them as opposed to rent them or borrow them or, or do something else. I think that there's a lot of the creator economy has created this massive surge in people with eyeballs. They do it for a year or two and then get bored with it or move on to the next thing, or they just get stuck, right? They don't know, okay, like I'm doing all this work and I'm not getting anything in return. So screw it. I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And there's not a great way for those people to benefit from the work that they've done and really shepherd and foster it to the change of hands to someone who can really do something for this. I'm excited in that aspect of it. And I'm excited about it because I tried to fit within DealMaven and DealMaven is really built. It's really built in a different way to not really manage assets that are that small. And so I was excited when I saw a marketplace that I felt like I could really easily just like change it one degree from a messaging standpoint to really cater to it. And that's the hope. Yep. I see a lot of opportunity in that space. And with, I think that it's evolving. I think AI is going to disrupt it, but I think if you can embrace AI and I mean, there's some cool stuff going on. You're talking about media and influencers and stuff. I don't remember who he did, who he sold it to, but Bruce Willis just sold his likeness, his voice and his whole persona basically to some Hollywood firm so that they could deep fake him into movies in the future. And it's almost there. I don't know if you've seen my interview with the, the AI bot. I interviewed chat GPT as if it was a guru. And then I put it into a deep over voice fake. But not only did it create a voice for the chat GPT, which I jokingly named Ollie Pinman, which is artificial language intelligence. So Ali, so I gave him a name that sounded like a real name and Pinman, yeah. a tin name. 
I just nominated and hired him, right? So Ollie Finman's now an employee. So anytime you see a co-authored author, like one of my podcast notes or one of the media article for the blog or even a newsletter or something, if you see it's co-authored by Ollie Pinman, it means we use artificial intelligence to write 60% or more of the content. We're just going to, we named him, right? We gave him a, we even pulled a not a real human photo. If you've ever messed with that AI, where it just generates fake yeah, human yeah. photos that look real. So he's got a real person. There's a persona there. He looks like a real person. He's just not, right? So Ollie has a face even, but uh, I honestly think that whole space, somebody that has a voice like the, potentially later on, say five years from now, I decide I'm ready to actually retire and I don't want to do any of this anymore. I could sell the likeness of my voice. Somebody could write scripts for this show. I could even, you know, there's just so many different things that could happen then that wouldn't yeah. be able to happen now and it could carry on. Right. It would sound like me on the podcast. They might probably have to use an avatar instead of my ugly mug. Maybe they'll find a better looking <laughs> human. <laughs> the joke is like, there's just so many places this could go. A lot of people are thinking, will AI replace the writer or replace the podcaster or something? I don't know. I think it'll augment us and make us better. I think it'll give it in the long run. Could it jump on here and interview you? Very possible. But sure. I think as humans, we want human connections. I don't know. What do you think about the whole? like chat GPT and AI generated content. Yeah, I think it'll be my natural inclination is I'm typically kind of a perma bear on things like the whole Bitcoin. I never really got on the trend of Bitcoin. And obviously, so right now I look like a genius and in 12 months, I'll look like not genius. I tend, I think that progress, I guess the quote is that progress happens very slowly and then all at once. And I think that chat GPT, I've talked to a couple of buddies that are lawyers and the Luddite argument, the fear that, it, that technology is a job reducer over time, right? That technology replaces people. I don't, I think that it's, I think that it'll be a magnifier and enabler and will replace massively low skill, low wage work. And will be another tool that allows for people to get a lot more done in a shorter time frame. And so I think, I think it'll be a cost reducer. Things will be a lot more, a, a lot cheaper to get done, and you can be a lot more prolific in the things that you get done using those things as tools and enablers. Like, and and I think it it'll have a massive effect in areas where precision is less important. Right. Because I think ChatGPT can get you probably 60 or 70 percent of the way there kind of in the ballpark. And I think in areas where it where precision is very important, I think it'll have less of an effect. So like in the legal scenario, the doom and gloom scenario is ChatGPT. What do I need a lawyer for if ChatGPT can write this contract for me or can give me all of the case law and tell me the exact answer? Law is very imprecise. As it is, there's a lot of gray area that is left to reasoning. And so like, if you're in a court case, if you're suing somebody, that's the type of thing in law that kind of requires 99.9999999% accuracy to get the thing done versus me doing a couple hundred thousand dollar deal on a contract, right? That requires less precision than suing somebody. I think it'll be, it'll be a disruptor for sure. I think it'll kind of feel like Bitcoin, blockchain, whatever, right? Like there's going to be a couple winners, a massive amount of losers. And over time, I think it'll it'll have, an, have a bigger impact probably than what I price in because I tend to like underprice and be like, eh, it's all going to stay the same. And then I'm wrong occasionally. Funny is I thought the same thing until I started playing with it. And then I started playing with it and I actually interviewed it. Now the trick is, I've interviewed over a hundred plus people, right? So I know the question to ask. That's the one thing about any of these AI tools. It's the user that's asking the questions, knowing what to ask, knowing that something's missing and ask the question differently because you see something's missing, right? Right. It's and critical. And I think something like Bitcoin, right? I think Bitcoin has an issue because the suburban 45 year old mom can't do Bitcoin. It can't, it hasn't made the leap to mass adoption because it's not simple enough from a UX, UI, whatever the issues are, blockchain, right. putting it into cold storage, all that stuff's crazy. Managing all the keys. It's like, it's too complex. I think chat GPT and open AI, all those things. I think they're a lot closer already. Like it's a lot easier for me to interact with it, but to your point, like it, it requires some expertise 
And I think that drags mass adoption. And that's the thing that you have to solve over time is getting it there. I don't ever close the window. It's open, right? I use it for a lot of stuff. It's like, give me, like, especially for research, like, give me 10 ideas I should look into in this particular subject, right? And I'll read through it and four of them will intrigue me and I'll dive into it, right? But it gives me a head start as far as like, you start Googling stuff and you got to look at all the sponsored ads and all that. And you don't know the validity of, I would rate on a, a level of accuracy if the question's fairly general, Chappie T at an 80% accurate and Google at 20% accurate. Like when you, your first page of search results is so dependent on who's better at SEO than it is, whether or not the content is correct. Right. I think Google will have obviously Microsoft putting $10 billion in. I think that there, there's going to be a shifting landscape definitely in, in terms of the way that those things get done. And I'm not expert enough on SEO to know what I'm talking about, but I do think it'll be a big I think it, in, in, in some industries, it'll have massive change in. I only brought it up because there's no way you could be in buying and selling media assets as of today and not understand that space yep. because some of the stuff that people are going to bring stuff to you in the next six months that was augmented by, built by, and or maybe even 100% built by AI and they're trying to sell it. And the question is, where's the real value, right? Are the, to me, it's engagement. It isn't the fact you have 100,000 followers. It's the fact that if you send something, you get a 25% open rate, right? It's the interaction. You get yeah, X you need, number. You need the actual eyeballs, right? You need human eyeballs and ideally human eyeballs that have a credit card somewhere or somebody's credit card somewhere someday. Like you got to get your return on your investment. And I think ChatGPT also can help in kind of the transition of some of these assets, having somebody else take over a podcast. Ideally, if I were to buy your podcast, I can say, what would the next five episodes of how to exit podcasts look like? I think that that's a helpful thing, but yeah, it'll definitely have an impact on media for sure. One of the things I haven't found out there, and I keep posting it on social media, hoping some rocket science engineer is gonna develop, is the AI tool where I can go, I'm interviewing, Raleigh Williams, here's five, here's 10 podcasts he's been on, right? Download them, consume them, know them, right? Know the transcript. Here's two books he's written. Here's his, his LinkedIn pages. Here's all his social media. Formulate, well, one article and 20 questions that I should ask this guy. And right. the knowledge is out there, but none of it is, there's no interactive. To me, it's not artificial intelligence, serving intelligence. It becomes true AI when I can give it a question and it prompts me for more information. Like, oh, you want me to write about Raleigh Williams? Do you have any, what's a social media, which one? I can find 15 on the internet. Which one are you talking about? This guy, cool. I see you wrote this book and this book and this book. Is that correct? Nah, that's a different guy, right? When it interacts with you and gets factual information, then it becomes, that's what we do as humans. That's what you and I do as interviews. That's what you and I do. When we sit down with a business owner is, and any highly intelligent person I've ever met they ask a lot of questions, right? They dive deeper in artificial intelligence that don't, that doesn't ask you more questions that they don't dive in a little bit deeper is still lacking for me. Yeah. I see in the next, when we have this conversation next year, I think it'll be a totally different conversation. Yeah, I agree. So, but all right, so let's talk about kind of how people can work with you, like make sure that people know how to get a hold of you. Before we do that real quick, my favorite one to do is if somebody can remember only one or two, maybe three things from the show today, what do you want them to remember? Only do things that if you're right, you get rich. And if you're wrong, you don't go broke. I think that can serve you pretty well. <laughs> That's it. You must have said that online or something. That You, you must use that phase before because I heard it. And when I decided to buy media assets, I'm like, I'm going to start really, I'm going to buy something that if I screw it up and I don't know what I'm doing, it don't hurt. I mean, it, doesn't, it ain't going to put me under. Right? I'm not going to go buy a seven-figure assets because I just don't have the wherewithal. I'd have to liquidate a bunch of real estate and much other stuff to ever pull that off, bring in a bunch of other people, whatever it would take. The risk is too high. So I've never run away. But I could acquire some smaller assets, build a few things, build on it, get some skin in the game and figure out that this is something that really works for me and then make a larger purchase later on. Yeah, I agree. So I love that concept. And how do people work with you? I mean, I know that there's that do gills get rich website, right? Yeah. If you go to dealmaven.io, you can, we put out a newsletter once or twice a week on just things that are happening and mergers and acquisitions, deals. That's typically the tip of the spear with people getting involved. If you want us to help you acquire a media asset, we do that. And then the other thing is just 
a lot of times when we find deals that we like, we'll take limited partners in on deals where they just want to put cash in and let us manage it if they're accredited. Uh, and all that can, you can, on dealmaven.io is probably the easiest place to just kind of see what the ecosystem is and what the availability is. Okay, cool. And then you got a podcast of your own or you're launching one or something, right? You have a show. I see you go live a lot. Yeah, I do. I have a podcast that used to be Do Deals Get Rich. Now it's Dealmate. We're just, we're simplifying. We have Dealmaven and Media Acquire. We're just in the simplification process and trying to get down to the core aspects. And so Dealmaven podcast, Dealmaven newsletter, Dealmaven site, and then Media Acquire if you're looking for media assets. So they're going to be able to find that on that deal maven io if they want to like listen to some uh-huh. of your content and stuff i'm a big blue ocean guy man i want people to listen to this and go i like this guy i want to go check out what he's got go consume some of your content learn from you too so yeah uh, i appreciate that yeah dealmaven.io will be the place to find the podcast all that stuff awesome well thank you for being on the show today hang out for a few seconds afterwards and we'll just call that a show hey it's your host ronald skelton i want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now